The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us show. We're so excited today to have Dr. Shirley Medea with us. We did a podcast recording with her recently that tells you all about her amazing career. And I'll have a link in the description of that in the um, show notes. But right now, what I wanted to do is grab her all for myself (laughs) because I have a lot of questions that I know that people my age, people 40 and, and older especially, have all these questions. You know, Jay and I always um, have thought about all the questions that people want to ask, but don't know who to ask or where to get their information. You know, for example, going into an art gallery, you know, can you ask the price? Can you even go in an art gallery without uh, the purpose of buying a painting? You know, what's that bag? How much does that cost? All these questions. And so people just don't do it. Because of their, you know, their embarrassment or whatever. So that's the same thing I feel like we're talking to a plastic surgeon. So Dr. Shirley is a plastic surgeon in New York City. Yes. And she has a philosophy about the way she practices medicine that she can touch on. And then we're going to dive right in. Questions that people want to know, you know, before they make the step, even just to set up the appointment kind of thing. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit about your philosophy. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. And I think this is a very exciting episode of your show because I think it really is important to be able to ask those questions and get credible answers. So I look forward to being a credible source for you and to serving you and your audience. So my philosophy I love a good Q&A. So yeah, let's dive right in. (laughs) My philosophy is that of holism or holistic plastic surgery. And in addition to holistic plastic surgery, there's a tagline that follows it and it's person before procedure. And the reason why I frankly came up with that tagline and name and brand and philosophy is that it ties in a lot with how I see healing and beauty and wellness. And it also ties in with some of my values, both culturally and how I've been trained and raised. I do believe that beauty emanates from within. And I have had the privilege and the honor of being taught about the human body and how to help it to heal. So my perspective is that 
healing comes from within, but clearly what I can do is to help people to manifest their best versions of themselves, help to bring out that inner beauty, but help it to really show through and radiate on the outside as well. In my practice, in addition to performing all the usual fabulous plastic surgery procedures, both operative and non-operative, I actually really get into someone's history and their medical issues and um, what it is about them that really it wants to seek an enhancement. And so we talk about all those things. And so it helps me to create not only an outer picture of what they're looking to improve, but also an inner picture of what their motivations are and how healthy they are and whether or not their skin would be able to tolerate and heal well from the needle or the knife. So all of that is very important and helps to serve as the foundation for my holistic plastic surgery practice. And voila. Yes, I think it's brilliant. I think it's <laughs> Thank you. so necessary and should be, you know, of course, of course that's the way you do it, but we know that's not the case usually. So that's why you're such a special person. Well, I thank you um, very much. <laughs> I mean it, I mean it. So when one thing I've wondered about, well, Julia maybe asked me, because she's, you know, she's 28. She, she doesn't know much about any of this stuff yet. <laughs> she said, well, how do people even know when, to stop using the Botox and the fillers, you know, when it's time to go on and, and have, go to the next phase, get under the knife. Yes. Well, that really, frankly, depends on everyone's, someone's individual beauty quotient or their beauty philosophy. If you've grown up in a family where they like to age gracefully, being completely untouched and natural, and you're comfortable with that, and that makes you happy and you have no hangups about that, then maybe you don't need to look into Botox or the fillers. If, however, on the other hand, you're on the other end of the spectrum and you grew up in a family or you've been influenced by other people, family, friends, whichever, that um, do little things to help you age gracefully, then there's absolutely no judgment in that at, at, at all. So you can go from zero all the way to 180, depending on your beauty philosophy, what you believe in, how you feel about yourself, knowing that you're fabulous always, but that maybe you can undergo a little bit of, you know, tweaking just to bring your best face forward. Right. I think that's great. Because, you know, my mother, I, she definitely was the um, person who wanted to age gracefully and you yes. know, looked up to Catherine Hepburn, especially people like that which is great, but she has also said, but you know, Allison, if we had had these small uh, procedures, we yes. also done that too. It yes. was uh, getting a facelift was so dramatic and, you know, what if that changed us and, you know, in some irreparable way or whatever. But, um, so that's something to think about when you think my mother never did any of this. Well, she may have very well. It wasn't there for her to do. That's right. That's absolutely right. And there's no, no judgment in any of that. And certainly, thank goodness, these days with plastic surgery, you can age gracefully with a little bit of help from your friends. Right. <laughs> so that, that's when I think we should just dig into these questions. <laughs> so what I wanted to do for each of these areas is how much they cost Yes. Generally, it doesn't yes. mean what you charge, but what, okay. you, what you can expect. Um, you know, how long is the procedure? How long is the recovery? And does it hurt? So <laughs> let's start at the top. Let's start. We can, like, the net, the face is one thing, and we can yes. differently. But, like, 
let's start with the neck. What do people do? Do you have people come in that don't like their neck? Yes. There are so many. In general, there are lots of things that we can do for every part of the body. That's beautiful. You know, a woman needs options. And I think that's fantastic. So for every, just about every part of the body, there are operative and non-operative or surgical and non-surgical options. Okay. So for people who who don't like their neck, it depends on what they don't like. Is there a lot of fat underneath the neck? Is it just sagging skin? Is it a very thin neck, but you can see the muscles and sort of the banding? So it depends on the issue. And for each one of those issues, there are potential solutions. For example, for the muscles, so you don't get that banding in the neck. Right. But but for people who want a longer lasting results, who don't necessarily want to come in every four to six months for repetitive Botox injections, then certainly there's a neck lift and that's a surgical procedure. For the surgical procedure, there is obviously downtime. For the injectable procedure, there's less of a downtime, right? There is always with you know, any kind of penetration into the skin, any kind of incision or ejection into the skin, there is always some level of response by the body, whether it's large or small or minimum or overt, frankly, depends on not only the injection technique and what is being injected and how much is being injected, but also the patient's state of health. Right. If, if someone has a body that's full of inflammation, perhaps they just don't know it and it's not manifesting in the form of, you know, pain someplace, then that inflammation will definitely show up when you add more inflammation to it. Even if that additional inflammation is for the purposes of enhancement and is healthy and is sterile and is all good. Right. So the, the body will respond in some way. Okay. So generally speaking, downtime for injectables, maybe 48 to 72 hours, right? Again, depending on the person, whether or not they bruise easily, swell up easily, et cetera. For surgical procedures, on average, depending on the operation and what is being done and how many procedures are being done at once, the recovery time may be anywhere from one week up to three weeks, so all of those things must be taken into consideration when someone is considering a procedure, whether they have the time, energy, money, budget to be able to have a surgical procedure or a non-surgical procedure. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So what about women who, you know, there's, there, there's, they'd like to have their Chest. <laughs> yes, their breasts. Yes. For women who would like to have their, bre <laughs> their breasts lifted. Now, interestingly enough, their breasts lifted, that is a procedure called mastopexy. And it is an operation. And I'll just talk about the most traditional. It is, the, it is an operation. And that can take anywhere from two and a half to four and a half hours, depending on the size of the breast, the size of the patient, et cetera. Their response to anesthesia, the surgeon's operative time. Some surgeons just like to move through a certain kind of flow, and that might be faster than another surgeon's or slower than another surgeon's. So again, nothing wrong with that. Um, so that operation does involve scarring. So incisions are made. Skin has to be removed for the many times. And then the breast tissue has to be 
um, manipulated or rearranged and repositioned in such a way that they are lifted. But that operation does indeed involve incisions and because they involve incisions, you will incur scarring, but a scar is not inherently a bad thing. I have had patients who say to me, well, I don't want a scar. I'll say, well, then you can't have an operation because in order for me to remove any part of skin, et cetera, or do this operation, I must make an incision. And when we make an incision, your body has to heal that. And the incisions may heal beautifully and and, and may not even be obvious, you know, months, two years later, but still there is a scar there. Well, and usually, you know, if you're someone my age, you're, probably going to be sort of covered up in that area anyway, you know, <laughs> not <laughs> necessarily Miss Allison. Oh, that's, not necessarily. True, that's, true, that's true. That's true. That's funny. <laughs> um, okay. So that's that. And then, um, pain getting over that, that hmm. is, there is going to be, you know, 48 hours or something around there or a little more that where you really are in pain. So for sure, there will be some discomfort. But thanks to the innovations and research of Big Pharma, we have medications that will obviously help with the pain. Um, I am an advocate of combining traditional analgesics, anesthetics, etc., pain medications with homeopathic medicines. So for me, in my experience, in my practice, I combine the two so that there isn't too much of a dependence on the opioids and the analgesics because I'm able to combine both the homeopathy or the naturally occurring medicines with the pharmaceutical medicines to help transition off of those um, opioids. And that I have found has been very, very helpful. That's so great. But for sure, there is definitely discomfort. And depending on the operation, there is more pain or discomfort than others. With a breast lift or breast reduction, I wouldn't exactly call it painful, but for sure there's discomfort. With a tummy tuck, however, because we're pulling those muscles in and creating that sort of, you know, corset shape, (laughs) that hurts. (laughs) Let's get to that right now. I remember the other day you said something about a a mini tummy tuck too. Yes. So the first thing is cool sculpting. And, you know, so many people say that was a lot of money and I couldn't really tell much of a difference and I had to wait three months. Yes. So it's not ideal, but it's, but it does help a little bit, right? Yes. 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 So it does help a little bit and devices versus surgery. Clearly there are big differences. There are advantages and disadvantages of each. If someone is looking for, you know, a mild to maybe, I'll be generous to moderate change, then perhaps cool sculpting may be helpful for them. Cool sculpting doesn't necessarily address all of the issues. If there's excess fat and sagging skin, cool sculpting may not be the ideal therapeutic option. Whereas the tummy tuck will address extra skin and extra or excess fat However, there's the time, the expense, the money, the pain, et cetera. So in terms of a mini tummy tuck versus a full tummy tuck or mini abdominoplasty versus a full abdominoplasty, frankly, the major differences are that with the mini tummy tuck, the incision is smaller. So imagine, you know, a a short smile line in the lower part of the belly or above the pubic area, short smile line. And the other major difference is that when we 
do the operation, there's something called undermining, which is not the same undermining in general terms. But basically, it means we're creating a dissection plane and where we want to free up tissue so that we can pull it down to create the place where we're going to remove the excess. In a mini tummy tuck, we're only going up to the level of the belly button. Whereas in a full tummy tuck, we're going all the way up to the level of the lower ribs. So imagine if I'm able, if I have more laxity, right? If I have more ability to pull the skin and tissues down because I've gone all the way up to the ribs to free up the tissues, I can pull more. Whereas in a mini abdominoplasty or a mini tummy tuck, if I'm only going up to the level of the belly button, I don't really have as much pull to be able to pull that much down. And therefore, not everybody is a candidate for a mini tummy tuck. Sometimes you got to go the full Monty. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. It's kind of, and also if you're going, some people have, you know, some people have been getting like a lower facelift. And another doctor said to me, well, what's the point of that? If you're going to do it, you might as well do the whole thing. Because <laughs> you have to go through it twice. But we can talk about that in a little while. But, okay, so that's the tummy. Yeah. And then um, getting down to the thighs and the derriere. Yes. talked a little bit about something new that might be coming our way to help us stay light. Very interesting. So in terms of operations, there is a thigh lift, there's a lower oh. body lift. Oh yeah, lower body lift. And those oh. opera- <laughs> those <laughs> operations tend to address mostly sagging skin with some level of, you know, fat. Yeah. And for skin that is not tremendously saggy, but there are pockets of fat, then there's liposuction for that. And for skin that is not saggy and for pockets of fat that are sort of gone flat, then there's always augmentation or adding fat or adding some kind of filler. But in terms of the texture or the appearance of the skin, Mm -hmm. then the FDA just approved a new medication for the management of cellulite. Now, cellulite is an interesting conundrum because it isn't just caused by one thing. And frankly, there's still a little bit of nebulousness around what exactly causes, you know, the condition. It's not really a condition. It's just this thing, right? It isn't a disease, even though many women consider it as such. (laughs) (laughs) But there are genetic factors. There are epigenetic factors, meaning lifestyle issues. There are, you know, there's skin issues. There's a fat issue. There's ligamentous issues with the ligaments and that whole sort of the skin together and weave in between the fat. There's water issues, lymphatic issues. So one medication that may address one or two things will not absolutely cure, if you want to use that word, or resolve cellulite. However, I do think that it is an important, um, just an important addition to the arsenal. In addition to all the things that, you know, we need to do to improve the appearance, I'm very excited to see what this new drug will do. When you do, when you do a thigh lift or whatever you said, yeah, does that just tuck your skin up? And how in the world do you do that? Well, it depends. Is it an inner thigh lift or an outer thigh lift? If it's an inner thigh lift, yeah, you make the incisions in the groins and you pull up those inner thighs. You know how the inner thigh skin is very soft and thin. 
-hmm. So you can actually pull that up and bring the incision into the groin or to the bikini area where, you know, depending on what you wear, you may not even see those incisions. And that does provide a little bit of a lifting on the inner thighs. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. So, I know. It's so, so much we can do. So that would be for people, it sounds like maybe that have like more gravity issues than maybe <laughs> fat issues. Maybe. Exactly. Yes. I mean, with surgery, you can take care of both. But yes, oh, it tends to be more of a skin gravity issue than a fat issue. Because again, if the skin is nice and taut and elastic, but there just happens to be, you know, excess amount of fat there, you can make right. a minimal incision the size of half of a thumbnail mm-hmm. and you can remove some of that fat surgically with liposuction. Absolutely. And when you get something like that, a lower lower body left or whatever, yeah, it seems like that would take months to yeah, the lower body lift is is pretty high maintenance and it's it's dramatic. It creates dramatic results. Um, but yes, that typically involves an incision that I call around the world. So it goes around your whole torso to be able to lift up the entire lower body. And I've performed that operation primarily in people who have lost massive, exactly. lost massive amounts of weight, you know. 80, 100 plus pounds, and they lose all that fat, but all the skin is sagging. And yeah, and the best option, frankly, in terms of improving their appearance is to remove that excess skin. Right. Yeah. That's great. That's available. Yes. Yes. Thankfully. Um, And maybe that's the same thing with knees. You know, I've I've had a lot of my clients talk about their knees. They hate their Uh. knees. Which, um, you know, I don't know what to say to them about that. <laughs> yeah. But is that that upper leg lift too, to take care of knees? Well, the leg lift, um, you know, that inner thigh leg lift or even that side thigh leg lift won't really take care of the knees. And it's ideally really not a great idea to be able to raise all that tissue all the way down to the knees to bring it back up. There have been some... Um, there are some cases where you can perform liposuction around the knees, but because that knee area is kind of a complex area with, you know, veins and nerves and blood vessels, et cetera, that's kind of one of those areas that you really have to be cautious about. Mm-hmm. And many times the appearance of the knees may look better or worse depending on what's happening above. So maybe not focusing on the knees, but maybe just looking at the thighs right. and seeing what's going on there. Yeah. That's a great idea. That's a very good idea. And I think too, sometimes when you're looking down at something, it looks worse than when people are. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and you mentioned earlier costs. Oh, yeah. Now, costs or fees, right? Because there are costs and then there are fees, right? So the fees will vary, obviously, regionally. They will vary according to the surgeon and his or her uh, staff and uh, overhead, et cetera. And they will also vary according to hospital. So there are many variables that go into the fee for an operation or the fee for an in-office procedure. But in general, the injector, and of course, it does depend on the cost of the material, right? If if breast implants cost $3,000 from the manufacturer, then obviously that's a cost that has to be passed on to the patient, right? It's inherent in the total fee. Um, Same with the injectables. If we have to purchase the injectables for $1, I wish, but not right. Then that's something that is gets pulled into the overall fee. So generally speaking, depending on all of those variables, injectables can cost anywhere from $500 up to $1,000 per, you know, vial of 
Botox per syringe of filler. And again, it depends on the type of filler. There are fillers that last mm, three to five months, and those are maybe lower priced. There are fillers that have more a longer duration, maybe five to nine months, and they will cost a certain amount. And then there are the more semi-permanent or longer lasting fillers that can last up to two to three years. And of course, those will cost more. In terms of operations, in general, I won't list the prices of, of each operation, but in general, there are a few things to consider. Number one is the surgeon's fee. And that surgeon's fee is generally fixed. It's not based on time or how long it takes or how fast it goes. That's the surgeon's fee. The second is the operating room fee. And whether or not that happens in a hospital or in a doctor's you know, certified operating room, there is always a facility fee or an operation fee to be able to rent that space out or have it used if it's not being used by someone else. And then lastly, you have to pay the professional who is helping you to withstand the surgery, and that's the anesthesiologist. Right. And then again, inherent in all those fees is the cost of materials, the sutures, the bandages, etc. So there are a lot of factors that go into building the fee. So that's why someone generally can anticipate that when it comes to an operation, it's going to cost and it should. And when it comes to an in-office procedure, it won't cost as much as an operation, but there are still fees associated with that, depending on devices, et cetera, and products and time. And let's not forget, <laughs> I get some patients who will sometimes ask me, oh my gosh, why is that so expensive? Well, in addition to the actual cost of the manufacturer, which I have no control over, let's not forget that I'm hoping that you're coming to me because you believe that I have a certain amount of expertise and you value that. And also, oh, and that there's also my time. So exactly, <laughs> more for an operation and everything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so would you say like six thousand to twenty thousand, or? you know, a rough ballpark? I mean, For operations? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. That depends on the operation. I mean, um, yeah. I'll just use it, my experiences in New York from what I've seen. I've seen anywhere from $5,000 for doing a blepharoplasty or eyelid lift all the way to $35,000 for a face and neck lift. So, yes, it's a wide range. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Um, Okay, and then the last thing, I guess, is the underarm area right here. Yes. People do about that? Yes. As with the lower body and the thighs and most parts of the body, it depends on what the desired result is and what the anatomy or the morphology, what it looks like. So if it's mostly fat with some good skin elasticity, then maybe liposuction would be a reasonable option. But if there's skin laxity or sagging skin and really not too much excess fat, then maybe someone can consider an arm lift. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that incision may be made in the armpit and hidden within the armpit as well. And same, similar concept in terms of technique, right? You undermine or raise that amount of skin in the upper arm and then just pull it Right, or you can make a different kind of incision and then just rub it. Wow, <laughs> I'm sure we're yeah. all like, okay, sign me up for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so that's the body, and then let's talk about like eyes and face. And yes, so many options for the face. You can transform 
a face and not necessarily to look like someone else or to look totally different, but you can really enhance a face non-surgically with injectables such as the neuromodulators, Botox, Xeomin, Dysport, et cetera, or the fillers, whether or not that filler comes off of a shelf or you use your own fat to be able to fill. As we age, a number of things happen. We, we may get some bony resorption, so the bones kind of get a little thinner and flatter. We definitely lose skin elasticity, so things our skin tends to sag. Yeah. Believe it or not, we lose fat. I wish I could lose it, you know, in my body and <laughs> not lose it in my face, but oh, it doesn't seem to work that way sometimes. <laughs> so we lose fat in our faces. And then things tend to look drawn because of all of those, all of those factors. Things tend to get pulled down. The muscles tend to sort of sag, et cetera. So there, for each one of those factors, there's an option. And when you combine those options to create a more harmonious look, then I think you can get fabulous results non-surgically. Now, there is a limit. If there is a lot of skin sagging, or a loss of skin elasticity and the skin just doesn't recoil or bounce back, meaning you pinch your skin, you pull it out and it stays pulled out, (laughs) Um, then injectables maybe are not the best solution. That's where I would suggest or recommend to someone to look into a facelift, which is an operation. And they don't have to be dramatic. There are different levels of facelifts that can be performed. A skin only, a skin and muscle, or skin, muscle, and all the way down to bone. And that one definitely tends to be the most dramatic. Um, but again, there are different levels of facelifts that can be performed. Ideally, in combination with the neck, you want a, you, you want a nice, harmonious whole picture, and not just this looking fabulous, but what happened to the neck. Right. So there are different there are different options that can be performed again, surgically, non-surgically, and even a combination of both. I have had um, because neither neither avenue addresses everything. Right. There are times when um, I perform a facelift and everything looks fantastic. But then years down the line, you notice that there's some volume loss and that isn't something that surgery can necessarily improve. You can you can transfer fat at the time of surgery. But if not, then you'll have to keep doing fillers just to get that volume or right. to maintain it. And that makes sense. And that's really important to, for people to listen to about the neck because sometimes I feel like you're looking at your face and you're thinking, I really look old, but, I, but my face is, I don't feel like it's my face, but you never even consider the fact that it's actually, even you looking at it is the brain is telling you there's something that's right feel old and it's your neck so that is something and we also know we're supposed to be putting all the lotions that we put on our face and all of that stuff except for is retinol too 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 strong for your neck no um i mean in the typical doses that are prescribed i actually use my retinol also on the sides of my neck i do and onto my decolletage so i don't use it every night and i know some dermatologists recommend that um but I guess as a plastic surgeon, I just kind of do my own thing <laughs> and I don't use it every night, but yes, I do extend it onto my neck and no, as long as it's used appropriately and not overused, then it should be fine. And then, so as far as a facelift goes, yes, neck, 
you know, all of these things. You've seen and heard these stories, not, not stories where they didn't like the results, but yeah. that, you know, if I'd known how bad this was going to hurt, I wouldn't have done it. But then, you know, four months later, they're so happy they did it or whatever. But yes, um, how much downtime with, you know, not the most dramatic, but, uh, but the one you do most of maybe. Yeah. So on average, downtime for a facelift is probably a week. Oh, wow. That's all. Yeah. But I say that with a caveat. Yeah. Uh, a week before you can go out and you know, and go to a supermarket or go shopping or whatever, but still it's important to give your body that time to heal and know anywhere on the body, any incision, any operation, it takes six to eight weeks for the body to begin to form collagen. And collagen is almost like the glue of an incision. It's what gives the, the wound or the incision or the uh, scar, if you will, strength. And without that collagen, then things are very vulnerable and very fragile and can still open or fall apart, God forbid, right? So even though most of your swelling and your bruising, most of it may be gone by one week and you feel comfortable, maybe, you know, visiting a friend or going to the supermarket or going shopping, whatever the case may be, it's very important for patients who have undergone any surgery to know that really things are still in a precarious state for at least six to eight weeks. And that's just the beginning of collagen formation. I I also tell my patients that it will take up to one to two full years before the scars are fully matured. So when I do a facelift and my patients are feeling like they look fabulous at three weeks or six weeks or nine weeks, I tell them, don't take any pictures of yourself yet until at least six months Wow. As things will continue to change yeah. and you really won't get the final settled in right. results for probably, you know, at least six months to one year. Yeah. I yeah. That. And I'm sure some people, um, you know, swell easier than other people. Yes. And some people, I know I bruise a lot easier than some people and, you know, everybody's different, right? You Absolutely. Yeah what's going to happen for you at 60 years old. And this is what's going to happen for you at 45 because it's going to be. That's right. And not only that as an individual, and this goes back, goes back to the holistic aspect of my practice. Why is it that someone is bruising more easily? That will definitely affect not only the patient's experience after surgery, but it may potentially affect the results. And it really does behoove me to try to find that out in advance to try to improve upon that or resolve it so that we can have a positive result that is the best that it can be given the patient, the circumstances, et cetera. So that's why it's another reason why I think it's very important to be able to ask all those questions in advance and see if there are any issues that may potentially interfere with the best result possible. I think that that is, um, you know, remarkable. There's so many things that I feel like should be status quo that are not. But I think the fact that you take the time, you know, you said very rarely after the very first appointment do we set up, you know, surgery or whatever. You know, you really do get to know people and what they're expecting. And we've all heard now that a lot of times, maybe you'll get the plastic surgery, but you haven't dealt with the underlying emotional issues that you're having. And so it it doesn't help. You know, you're still there. 
Where we right. go, where you are, right? Because, because there's the result, which is obviously right. important, right? And then there's the perception of the result. Ah. And frankly, fortunately or unfortunately, they can be two different things. They may not always be aligned. Right. And sometimes that can cause a lot of, you know, stress and drama, both for the patient and the surgeon, obviously. Sure. You know, the patient being the most important. So it's important to try to bring together those factors before surgery as, as best as possible in advance to make sure that both the doctor and the patient are going to be operating room together as a team, knowing as much as they can, right, about this patient's body so that if anything were to happen in, in the operating room that's unexpected, then right. maybe what we know in advance may help us to solve whatever's going on in the operating room or afterward. Right. I remember uh, very early in my career operating on a woman who I think maybe I was exchanging breast implants. She had had them done previously, but maybe wanted a smaller or a bigger size. I don't remember the details exactly. This was many years ago, but I will never forget the operating room experience. So I did everything that I was supposed to do. I checked everything off, but this was before you know, my holistic, <laughs> uh, yeah, this was before my holistic philosophy went into overdrive. Right. And, um, but everything else checked off medically. She had gotten clearance from her doctor. Everything was fine. I, and I specifically remember asking her husband who was there for the appointment, if there were any problems with bleeding or bruising, et cetera. And he vaguely remembered, he vaguely thought, oh no, she may have bled a little bit more than usual during her pregnancy. I'm not sure, but everything was fine. So I did all the usual blood tests. Everything came out fine. The standard blood test, everything came out fine. So we proceeded to surgery. I will never forget what the insides of that area of the patient's breast look like. I will never forget. Um, hard to describe here because I'd have to use a lot of sort of medical terms, but suffice it to say that I walked away thinking that tissue looked angry. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget that. That's all it could come to mind. That tissue looked angry. And she did fine. She did absolutely fine except for the fact she was bruised and swollen for a, a longer period of time. And so when she came in for follow-up and I'm noticing that her bruising is taking a long time to get away, I thought, wow, all her blood tests were complete. The basic blood tests were completely normal, but I will never forget what I saw in the operating room. There has to be something else. Fast forward, I ordered more tests and then ordered a second level of test and then ordered a third level of test. And it wasn't until the third level of test that we found out that she in fact had a bleeding disorder. Oh my gosh. So here I am, the plastic surgeon diagnosing this woman, wow. you know, because of what I saw in the operating room with a bleeding disorder. Wow. And that could have been really dramatic. It sure. could have been really dramatic. Absolutely. So that taught me that it isn't just one part of the body that I'm operating on that's going through the procedure and having potential effects. It's the whole body. And therefore it behooves me. And I know most plastic surgeons, maybe all plastic surgeons do their due diligence and ask about medical history and complications and, you know, medications, it's drug allergies. We all do that because that's the standard. But I think the experiences that I had 
in my early career taught me that I just have to keep digging deeper until I feel personally and professionally comfortable enough that if something were to happen, I can at least have some idea as to why, and then I can help to fix that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Just telling the story, just hearing it, right? It's like <laughs> I know you're like, oh, but I yeah, that, that yeah. Having to go through that experience, you know, really helped your um, your life as a surgeon. I know. Yes, you know, having to go through that and realizing, oh, thank goodness, things yes. could have happened. Yeah, but, you know, but surgery I, surgery is serious, things. right? And it's like you didn't do anything that any other. You, you did everything right. That's yeah, so I thought, right, yeah. Because now you know you're going to be even more so than maybe, you know, other people making sure you understand exactly what's going on with the other person. Uh, okay, now uh, I want to talk real quick about virtual appointments and how you do those kinds of things. Do yes. You ever do that, like just a consultation with someone, they get up really close and you say, Oh, girl, look, it's so close. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I had for probably the past 10 years, I had always offered sort of online consultations. And that was through my platform called ClickLift as opposed to Facelift. It was click, like click the computer, you know, click-lift.com. So I've had that for many years. It has clicklift.com is a platform where you can upload photos, you can upload videos. And after a brief questionnaire, I look at everything I review. And if I think that I can be of service, then I respond within 48-ish hours. And I send the, if there's an automatic message that's generated that says, Dr. Madeira has approved of your consultation. And if you'd like to see the answer, click here. So... Right. And that I think I charge $100 for that because I really do take a lot of time to personalize and customize the response and the options available. But since the pandemic, that has had to change a little bit. Clicklift.com is still there. But some people were wanting more dynamic, in real time, face-to-face consultations. And therefore, I introduced uh, or sort of modified and reintroduced telemedicine or telehealth. And that, as opposed to doing it anytime, on time, in your time, like clicklift.com, that is more scheduled. Sure. Yeah. And it's true that sometimes you're looking at people and uh, there is an advantage to looking at people in real time and, and getting the consultation right then and there. But some people have been a little apprehensive about it. But it has grown significantly, not just for me, but for many physicians. And I think telemedicine or telehealth is here to stay. Yeah. And I'm thrilled with that. So yeah. If you're sick, if you don't feel good and you don't want to go to the doctor. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's a little different for plastic surgeons. I mean, frankly, if you're going to have a consultation and, you know, what are you going to say to someone? Oh, yeah, when this pandemic is over and when things are better, you really ought to come in because those pros feed are like serious. Right, right. <laughs> I think that like, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but, you know, when you watch somebody when they're talking and when their eyebrows are going up and when they're smiling and laughing, you can't get that so perfectly in a photograph. That's right. That's right. And that's another way that clicklift.com is, is different because I will ask people to upload their photos in different views with animation and without, but yes, there is definitely an advantage to the telemedicine or telehealth because I can see it in real time. And the same way that as I'm doing injections or before I'm doing injections, 
projections. I will ask people to animate, raise your brows, squint, smile. Let me see how the muscles are moving. Um, then you can also get a sense of that with telemedicine for sure. Yeah, that's great. And I feel like, um, you know, since this COVID, you know, it seems like it's going to be around at least maybe, well, forever, but hopefully by the beginning of the year, we'll have some sort of, you know, uh, shot or something. Um, yeah, better understanding, better management. Um, I'm, I'm personally, as a physician, frustrated that we just yeah. don't really have a real consensus yet about how this bugger is messing with us. Right. <laughs> but because of that, you know, even I think at the beginning, people thought when the restrictions were lifted slowly, that meant immediately you can go back to your normal life. Yeah. But that, what we're learning is it's really great to stay home when you don't, unless you have to go out and you've got to go out, you know, for a short period of time. But what I was thinking was it's a perfect time to do something like have a, a virtual cons consultation with Yes. You because you've been thinking about it for years. Do I need one? Is it time? Da, 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 da. And, and this is the perfect way to, that's the first step. You know, yes. it cost a couple of hundred dollars. How I don't know how much it costs to, to get yeah. you and talk over the options and yes. know each other and see yes. good synchronicity or whatever. And then, you know, then they can start planning. Well, this is that's right. going to be how much it's going to cost. And this is how much downtime I'm going to need. That's so right. It can be in April or maybe, you know, it's best to do it the following year in January, but go ahead and get the conversation started. Now. That's right. And get the information. I agree with you 100%. I give in consultation preoperatively, I give my patients a checklist. I have my own checklist. I love a checklist. Yeah. I have my own checklist. And then I give the patients a checklist and what they should be thinking about, what they should be doing one week before surgery, one month before surgery, six months before surgery. So yeah. So I like to make sure that we're all in the same space or on the same page. And when all those things get checked off, then at least in my mind, I know I've done as much as I could and everything that I can do to help to bring about the best result possible. And then the patient always also feels that way as well. Absolutely. That's so great. It's not, I think I want this, you go and you get it set up and you know, then you're on the way to the hospital going, what am I doing? What am I doing? I didn't even yeah. So yeah. Okay, the last questions will be, and you can just tell me, I know you told us before, but like your top three, the most common procedures that, that you do or that people look, are looking for. Okay. Uh, the top non-surgical procedures that I perform are Botox injections or neuromodulators. Uh, secondly would be the fillers. And then third would probably be some type of therapy for either the hair and I, it used to be a cellulite a lot, but I sort of sure. cut back on that in anticipation of this new medication. So I'd probably say it's um, Botox type injections, number one, filler type injections, number two. And the third would be a, a manifestation of vital glow or these vitamin injection, vitamin infusion therapies. And I do them not only for the face and neck, but I also do them to stimulate hair growth. So I do a lot of that. Okay, I didn't even think about that. So, so. <laughs> Your hair is fabulous. You have beautiful, beautiful head of hair. Well, no, I know people, you know, that's something that's going to start happening. So there are options for that too. Yes, there are. So hair loss, 
many reasons why we experience hair loss from vitamin deficiencies to stress to hormones. It's, there's a lot going on. So for sure, there needs to be a very thorough evaluation. But once we have the information from the evaluation, then one of the possible therapies can be not only medications, vitamin supplementation, obviously, um, but also there are some injection therapies that may be helpful. And one of them is PRP or platelet-rich plasma, which you draw your blood, you spin it down, you yeah. take the yeah, the fibroblasts, the stem cells, the you know the plays, the plasma, the platelets, etc., and you can add or not add vitamin D to that and some vitamins and inject into the scalp. Now, it, it takes months to a year to actually see hair growth because each hair is in a different one of three different phases basic, you know, hair physiology. So that is a great option. Actually, I enjoyed doing that as well. And that's non-surgical. Surgically, some of my favorites are uh, nose reshaping or rhinoplasty, uh, breast lift surgery, and um, tummy tucks. Oh, wait, but then facelifts also. I love so many of them. (laughs) I was saying earlier that surgery is serious. It is a very serious space. And it is a, a space that is sacred and, and sacrosanct. Right. But, but for me, it's also a very peaceful place. I enjoy being in the operating room. I think there's a very special um, you know, connection and relationship between obviously the patient and the surgeon, but also um, maybe unspoken and many times unspoken between the circulators and the people handing instruments and the anesthesiologists. Okay. It's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful dance when it works well. And it's just another level of, you know, connectivity that I think is really special. Mm-hmm. That, that's wonderful. I, and I also feel like a good surgeon is, you know, is a, is a sort of an artist basically. You know? Yes. Yes. We like to hope so. <laughs> I like to hope so. This has been so fabulous. I've kept you so long, but not um, at all. It's been a pleasure. It's only been a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. We have a lot more to cover, I'm sure. So we might have to have you back on. Absolutely. I'd be honored. So much, Shirley. It's been just very, very interesting. And um, we both, Jay and I both think you're just bad. Thank you so very much. I am honored to have been a guest. And now you're going to have to have a new segment on your show, not only about the style that binds us, but the beauty that binds us. That's exactly right. And I know I'm addressing a lot of things that, you know, people at my age, um, and, you know, a little younger and a little older that are going through. And I think yeah. that that's going to be a nice vertical for us too. So thank everybody so much for joining us today on the Style That Finds Us show. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty, curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD. Live beautifully and help make the world a more beautiful place.